God's word in hand. <clears throat> Turn with me once again to the book of Acts chapter 8, where today we will be studying verses 4 through 8. But I want to go back and start by reading in verse 1. So this is going to be uh, Acts chapter 8, <coughs> excuse me, Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of God. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with, loud, with a loud voice came out of many who, uh, who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts. Thus far in the book of Acts, we've had a mixed bag of sorts. We began the book with wonderful episodes of the power of God. It really begins with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascending into heaven to sit at the right hand of God, for God to put his enemies under his feet. It's a triumphant beginning. And then not long after that, in Acts chapter 2, Christ sends forth the helper, the Holy Spirit, who comes and falls upon the disciples. They begin to speak in tongues and to witness to the mighty works of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And thousands of people are added to the number of the church. But there's also examples of the inner turmoil that took place in the early church. We saw this with Ananias and Sapphira who had promised to give the full amount of the proceeds from the sale of a piece of property to the kingdom of God, but they failed to do so. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and so they died. There's this turmoil within the church. But then, especially when we get into chapter 6, the tone of the book takes a turn now to the tragic. And this is introduced to us with Stephen, a deacon, a man full of the spirit, a man full of faith. He goes around performing many mighty works, not to impress people by his own abilities, but in order that they might point people to the gospel of Jesus Christ for the salvation of their sins. And as he is doing this, he is captured by the Sanhedrin, like others before him, including his Lord. He is brought to the Sanhedrin. He is tried. He preaches a sermon. And rather than just beating him like they did the uh, apostles before him, rather than just threatening him, the Sanhedrin and the crowd is worked up into a mob. And they stone and brutally kill Stephen. Imagine the prayerful response that would have been given to this by the Jewish Christians living in Jerusalem. They would have just seen one of their beloved deacons brutally murdered. They would have been saying, God, 
Where is your mercy in this situation? Where is your justice? Your servant has just been murdered. Have you forgotten about your people? Well, here in in, in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, we see God's answer to this prayer. God is going to be both merciful to his people and he is going to give his judgment upon their enemies at the same time. But how can he do both of these things at the same time? How can he give both mercy and judgment? To answer this, we must understand a very important Old Testament theme, the theme of frustration. When we think of judgment in the Old Testament, we often think about the ground opening up under people's feet, fire raining down from heaven, God taking a global world superpower and bringing them into Israel and crushing them with sword and spear and death, leprosy, famine, any, those are the things that we think about. But there's another form of judgment, and we see this frustrating judgment particularly when we look at the pagan prophet Balaam. So in the book of Numbers, you're introduced to a pagan prophet. He's a prophet for hire. Balak, the the king of, of Moab, he sees the Israelites coming into the land of Canaan, and they are just cutting down all of their enemies. He says, the Israelites have a strength that is not of this world. They have a divine power, and therefore I need a prophet. I need somebody who can divinely curse these people. And so he goes and he finds Balaam. He says, hey, I need you to curse these Israelites. And Balaam says, sure, I'm up for it. And so he goes on a mountain over the people of Israel, and he goes to prophesy curses upon them. But God stops his mouth, and all that he can do is bless, bless, bless God's people. He was frustrated. And we see that same thing happening today. God causes the world's curses to become his people's blessings. I want us to see that theme in three ways. First of all, through the enemy's scattering of the church, God will restore them. And then secondly, through the enemy silencing the word, God will spread the word. And then lastly, Through the enemy's slaughtering of the church, God will increase their joy. Let's begin by looking at the enemy's scattering of the church and God's restoring of them. Let me draw your attention now to verses 1 and 5. Whenever you're reading through your Bibles, particularly in the New Testament, whenever you see something repeated, that should cause your antennas to go up. The author there is trying to draw your attention to that thing so that you might focus in upon it. And there's one thing that verse 1 and verse 5 have in common, and that is Samaria. What is so important about Samaria? Why would Luke be drawing our attention to it? I think a great way of summarizing it is what my missions professor, Dr. Medeiros, said. He said, there is theology in geology. There is theology in the nation and in the city of Samaria. So I want to give you two reasons why Samaria matters in this text. First of all, it's because of who they were. In the year 920 B.C., the kingdom of Israel splits into two different kingdoms. 
And the northern kingdom, uh, we'll take it back, we'll start in the southern kingdom. In the southern kingdom, you have the kingdom of Judah. It consists of two uh, tribes of Israel. Judah, which is by far the largest, and then Benjamin, one of the smallest. Their capital is in the city of Jerusalem. They worship in the temple of Solomon. Their priests are the Levites, and they serve the king from the Davidic dynasty, the line of David. But the northern kingdom is not so. Their capital, uh, their capital is in Shechem. And will later become Samaria, which is where we get the Samaritans from. They have two temples, one in Dan and the other in Bethel. And it's in those two temples that I really think we see why the Jews in the south hated the Samarian neighbors as much as they did. And Dan and Bethel, you had a combination of worship. You had the worship of Yahweh combined and mixed with pagan practices. And there's a reason why you see this in Samaria. They're going to be defeated later on by the Assyrian Empire. They're going to be led off into exile in Assyria. And when they're in Assyria, they're going to intermarry with the Assyrians. And so now not only is their worship and their religion mixed, but now their ethnicity is mixed as well. They're half-blooded in their religion and they're half-blooded ethnically. And so Judah despised their half-blooded Samaritan neighbors. You see this in the Old Testament. In the book of Ezra, uh, Zerubbabel is rebuilding the temple after the Babylonians have destroyed it. And a group of Samaritans come to him and say, hey, let us help you rebuild the temple. And Ezra's like, there's over my dead body. There is no way I'm allowing you to rebuild this temple. He couldn't stand the Samaritans. Even Jesus' own disciples couldn't stand them. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus goes into Samaria. He, he preaches the coming of the kingdom of God, and the Samaritans utterly reject him. And so as he's leaving the city, John and James come to him, and they say, Lord, um, if, you, if you would like us to, we could go ahead and call fire down from heaven upon them. We can make Samaria like Sodom and Gomorrah. Just, just give us the word, and we'll do it. But this hatred that the Jews and even Jesus' own disciples had of the Samaritans served a purpose. That was to highlight the the love of Jesus Christ for the Samaritans. And so in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus, his disciples say, let us rain fire down from heaven upon them, Jesus rebukes them. The Samaritans become the heroes of many of Jesus' own parables. He even reveals his Messiahship, first of all, to the lady at the, the, the adulteress at the well in John chapter 4, who was herself a Samaritan. Jesus loved the Samaritans because he knew that his father had wonderful designs and intentions for them. And this is the second reason for Acts 8's inclusion of the Samaritans. It was because of what God was going to do for them. And this is what he was going to do. He was going to restore them. The Jews were sending out the Christian church in order to silence them, in order to hurt them, in order to do violence to them. But through them, Samaria, their ancient enemies, become reconciled to the God of Israel. 
you'll see Jesus was a master of the scriptures. Through the prophets, he knew that God had not cast off the Samaritans uh, like Judah had. On the contrary, one message that the prophets was that the was of the future restoration of Samaria. Let me read for you Ezekiel chapter thirty-seven, verses twenty-one and twenty-two. Thus says the Lord God: Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which uh, they have gone, and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them, and they shall be no longer two nations. And no longer divided into two kingdoms. But all of that's going to take place by way of a king. Like I mentioned before, the Sumerians had a different dynasty than, than Judah did. But now there's going to come a king who is going to unite them. But it goes further. This servant king will not merely unite Judah with Samaria. He will bring about the greater and more glorious Israel the church of Jesus Christ. Listen to what the servant of God says in Isaiah 49. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It was too light of a thing for Christ to come and to restore Samaria with Judah. He must restore the Greeks, the Romans, the Arabs, the Africans, the Asians, all to Israel. The promise was this, Abraham, you shall be a blessing to the nations. What you see here is that there is a greater Israel, an Israel that is made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that goes beyond the borders of Israel. We get so, like now we think about the, the war that is going on in Israel and it is brutal it is hard, but here's the thing. The nation of Israel as it is today is not the greater Israel. You are the greater Israel. The people at the church down the road here, they are the greater Israel. The Christians worshiping in Egypt, in England, in South Korea, they are the greater Israel. Israel was just a type and a shadow of what was to come. This is the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Why would you want to go back to the temple and to the priests and to the sacrifices when you have Jesus Christ who is in the temple of the heavenly places, who makes an offering and sacrifice of his own blood and not the worthless blood of a bull or a goat? who lives forever to make intercession for you, not one time of year. Why would you want to go back to that? Why would you want to go back to that little parcel of land when the kingdom of God has no bounds, is cosmic in its expanse? Why? Why would you want to go back? 
This is the kingdom of God. This is the greater Israel. This is what Jesus came to do, to restore the world into Israel. And I'm so thankful that the heart of Salem is really geared toward missions. I've, I've only been here for a year, but I, I look and I see how we support missionaries in Pakistan and Mexico and South America and France and all out throughout Europe. And I look at that, and it's not just something we just started doing yesterday. It's something that we've been doing for 200 years. In fact, if you just look up ARP churches and just look around us, they're all over the place. We were community-driven, planting churches, expanding the kingdom of God. Why? Because the greater Israel matters. Samaritans matter. Gentiles matter. The ends of the earth, they matter. 3,000 years ago, Yahweh sent his people in to conquer the land of Canaan with sword and spear. But today he has sent us into the world to conquer it, not with swords made of iron, but with the sword of the spirit, which is made of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world meant to scatter the church and destroy the church. But in reality, all they did was send out missionaries. That is the frustrating mercy and judgment of God. Now let's move on to our second frustrating point here. As God frustrates the plans of his church's enemies, these enemies, they try to silence the word of God, but God is instead going to spread that word. Look with me now in verses 4 through 6. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. This is a wonderful example of how God works all things together for the good of his people. They tried to silence the word through violence, through Paul ravaging the church, but God uses their violence to spread forth his word. Instead of silencing the gospel, they became missionaries. But I want to draw your attention now to two words here that are used by Luke. In verse 4, the preaching of the word. And then in uh, verse 5, the proclamation of the word. And these two words highlight two very important aspects of us sharing our faith with others. This isn't just something you do from the pulpit. Preaching, proclaiming is not just something I do here. It's something that we do in pulpits. It's something we do in pews, at our dinner table, wherever you might be, wherever you share your faith. Preaching and proclaiming, those two words contain very important things for us to know. So let's begin by looking at the preaching of the gospel. The Greek word here is euangelizo. It means to bring good news. In the Greek world, this meant to bring good news from the battlefield. It was a military term. My grandmother um, grew up um, uh, in, during the World War II era. She was the youngest of it's either 15 or 16 children. She has somewhere between five and seven brothers fight in World War II. I've heard a lot of their stories, quite fascinating, but probably the story that she has told me that has stuck to my bones the most is the story of her mother, my great-grandmother. 
and how she would sit there at her house by her window looking out waiting for a military vehicle to drive up to bring her the folded flag telling her that one of her one of her babies had been taken in war but then but just as just as surely as she sat there she also stayed by the radio and got the newspaper to read to hear the best news that could ever come from a battlefield that the war had ended and in the place of gore and the place of loss and violence and death there was now peace the christian church has the greatest news of all the war has ended there is now peace with god we live in a miserable world that is without hope and it's because and the reason they can't find hope anywhere is because they don't understand that they're fighting this invisible war with this invisible God. And they're seeking to fill that gap in their hearts with all these other small little things. A great example that I came across this week was um, the, the, I don't want to say it's a testimony because I don't think he was a Christian, but uh, the story of the actor Matthew Perry. If you're a fan of the TV show Friends, he played um, Chandler on, on the show. Um, during the show and after the show, he dealt a lot with addiction to drugs and alcohol and all these different things. And I saw a video of him talking to somebody about this. And he said, my addiction began with a prayer. I sat down one day and I prayed earnestly that God would make me famous. And that God, if you just make me famous, I'll give you all that I got. Well, he made me famous. Be careful what you ask for. As it turned out, I didn't want fame. As it turned out, fame did not satisfy me. It just brought more hurt and pain and anger that I had to keep burying under drugs and dope and alcohol until I basically killed myself. God has done the same thing to me personally. I remember praying, oh, well, not all, not too terribly long ago, that, that God would encourage me. I've been going through a lot of discouragement. I said, God, please, I just, need, I just need a little bit of encouragement. And that began probably a few months to a year of some of the most discouraging days of my life. And I remember asking God, why in the world would you respond to my prayer for encouragement and then turn around and give me discouragement? And I think this is the answer to that. It's because the source of my encouragement was not from God. It was from other people. I never thought of myself as a people pleaser. I never thought of myself as a person going around idolizing the acceptance of others. God showed me otherwise. Be careful what you ask for. Be careful. Our message, however, is good news. That the debt is settled. You see, all that frustration that myself and Matthew Perry had, those were, that was God seeking the, arrow, the arrows of his judgment into us. But the good news is this. In Jesus Christ, I don't just have satisfaction. I have peace with God. Sin and death and Satan are destroyed and God's wrath has been satisfied and he has hung up his weapon and now I am satisfied in him. The invisible war is done. And that is what evangelism is. The preaching of the good news. 
It is not enough to call out people for their sins and to speak of wrath, even though those are true. We must speak of where wrath met its bitter end, the cross of Jesus Christ. If we do not include that little tidbit, we might say truth, 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 but there is no gospel within it. It is, not, it is never just judgment that we bring. It is also the feather of mercy. And that's briefly, that next word there is proclaim from the Greek keruso. It means to speak as a herald, always with formality, gravity, and authority. This is the manner and the source of our message. The source of our message is in our hearts. Our hearts are sinful and depraved. They come from God. They come through his revelation. They come from his word. And because of that, we must be steeped in his word reading his word, reading about his word, coming and sitting under the preaching of the word week in and week out. But I want us to make one thing clear. When it says that we need to be speaking as heralds with formality and gravity, that doesn't mean that we can inject humor and happiness and gladness. And there's a good reason for why these things are great and wonderful when we're sharing the gospel with others. Because to be the Christian is to be the one who has received joy in its abundance and this is our last point through though the enemy seeks to slaughter the church god increases our joy this is how this text ends in verse eight and so there was much joy in that city my hometown is jackson mississippi i love jackson mississippi before i tell you what i love about it i always had to I always have to first tell you, but you know, don't we're not to go, you know, because that's that's a pretty rough part. Uh, yeah, lots of shootings over here. Avoid avoid this area. Uh, yeah, also get your tires checked. There's potholes all over the place because we can't afford to fix the roads. But you really need to go. It really is great. There's some wonderful things about Jackson, Mississippi, and then if, uh, it's 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 just I, I, I it's wonderful. It's my home. It's where my heart is. But it sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? I love this place, but it's also awful. I imagine that's kind of the reaction to these Samaritans as they're hearing the good news coming from these Jewish Christians who had come up from Jerusalem. These would not have been people in pristine dress. They're covering their, they're, they're carrying their scars, their wounds, their bruises, their gashes. The, the trophies of their suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. And yet, in those wounds, they say, you really must get to know Christ. He really is quite wonderful. Look at you. How can you say that and, and look like that? And it's in this that this shows us the wonderful difference between the happiness of this world and the joy that is found in Jesus Christ. Anyone can be happy at a birth. Anybody can be happy at Disney World. But who is happy at the funeral parlor? Who is happy in the hospital? Who is happy like Stephen at the feet of those who were murdering him? That's the test of joy. Is joy something you attain from the circumstances or is joy something that you carry with you into jail cells, hospitals, funeral homes, or laying at the feet of those who persecute you? The world thinks that you can't have joy until all of those bad things go away. But the Christian knows the reality. 
For as long as sin persists in this world, there will always be jail cells. There will always be hospitals. There will always be funeral homes. And they will never go away. But we can still have joy in suffering because Christ, who is our joy, promises that he comes into our suffering. What is it that Jesus says? Behold, I am with you till the end of the age. He didn't just mean that at Pentecost. He also meant that when Stephen was being murdered. He meant that when Paul was thrown into prison, when Paul was beheaded, when Peter was hung upside down, when you go to the hospital, when you undergo cancer treatments, when you lose someone who is close to you, a family member, a child, a mother, or a father, Christ says, behold, I am with you until the end of the age. You see, our joy is not found in circumstances. It is found in Jesus Christ. We bring him with us into our circumstances. And it is there that the Christian can be called the people of joy. Our Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that as we go through the frustrations of life, the frustrations of the holiday season, that, Father, that you would (laughs) frustrate those frustrations and that in them we might find the joy and peace that surpasses all understanding because it, comes from the, because it comes from the presence of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is not apart from our suffering, but an ever-present reality within our suffering. But Father, we pray that as we suffer and as Christ is there, that, he, that Christ would not be in the shadows but that by way of your spirit working through your word and the preaching and proclamation of the gospel might be brought into the everlasting light of your shining face. And so, Father, please listen to the voice of your children this morning. Come and dwell with us. We don't ask that you would just remove suffering, although we would love that. But, Father, if it is your will to let us suffer, we pray that you would encourage us and empower us by Christ in our suffering. Would you do this for the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now let us stand.